But the Sheikh, he says, وَبَعْدْ فَعْلًا بِوُجُوبِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ We said there's this linear model of theology in the Muslim world. So on one side you had hyper-literalism. You had hyper-literalism. On the other side you had hyper-rationalism. So on this side is what's called aqlaniyin uh, or mu'tazila. And on this side you have what's called al-mujassima. Both of these like were at polar opposites of each other. And in the middle you had what's called ahlu kalam and ahlu salaf or al-adhar, atharyin. If you're to Venn diagram it, those two in the middle, they overlap. Unfortunately, this difference has been exasperated by people. Uh, especially people that want to create differences in the community of the Prophet We should avoid that, right? We, we should try to bring unity to the Muslim community. And one of the reasons that we're not together is like maybe internally and emotionally we're broken, right? If, if our hearts are together, then our community is together. So Allah said, Allah bayna qulubihim, like we brought their hearts together. Then later on, فَأَصْبَحْتُمْ بِنَعْمَةِ إِخْوَانَ The outcome of being in a good place emotionally and spiritually is أُخُوَة is brotherhood and sisterhood. So these two groups set in the middle, the literalism and the rationalism. Not literalistic, not rationalistic. This is, ra this is literalistic, this is rationalistic. So for example, people on this side, they said, whoever says that anything in the Qur'an is interpreted is a kafir. It's like everything, Qur'an is literal. So that caused them to employ a, a set of interpretive lenses that's like really problematic. On the other end, Al-Aqlaniyun, they used to say, anyone who says that there is any literal verse or word in the Qur'an is a kafir. <laughs> These people are like here, right? On two extremes. In the middle, you have two theologies that work to do two important things that are very hard to do that makes Islamic theology really cool, very powerful, and sets it apart from others. And that is number one, and most importantly, to affirm Allah's transcendence. Like that's like foundational to these theologies. That nothing is like God. No idolatry. In meaning, in the corporal or the spiritual world, there's no idolatry. On the other end, to affirm that a relationship with Allah is possible. So even though Allah is this transcendent, incredible, omnipotent power, it's possible to have a very meaningful, uh, even intimate relationship with Him. Islam does that without idolatry. Islam does that without an intermediary. Islam does that without making creation God. So it balances the idea of our, our understanding towards human beings is not original sin. Our understanding is original goodness and potential. With the idea that because of that, that relationship with Allah is possible. We don't have to sacrifice something to draw nearer to God. I just seek his forgiveness. So Islamic theology does really three or four things. I'm going to hit on three of them. Affirms Allah's transcendence. The promise of a relationship with him. أَقْرَبْ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَبَلِ الْوَرِيدِ لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَنَا Right? So transcendence. Like, there's nothing like him. There's nothing like God. Allah's nearness, I'm close to you, I'm nearer to you than your own, your own heart, I'm close to you. When Sayyidina Abu Bakr gets anxious, So the Prophet invokes. So the irony is that transcendency informs the nearness and allows me to feel blessed. Because even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is transcendent, I can have that relationship. The third thing, and this is where I think there's a lot of neglect, is that theology should prepare, prepare us for public life. Not private life. Private and public, right? Private life is a gimme. Like we can all be saints, 
in a room by ourselves. But jump on the A train. So what are the evidences for this? We gave the evidences for like فَعْلَمَ لَا إِلَهِ Allah. Allah's transcendence is there. Uh, Allah's closeness. You know, وَقَالَ رَبَّكُمْ عُنِي أَسْتَجِيبَ لَكُمْ Like make dua, I answer you. وَهُوَ مَعَكُمْ أَيْنَ مَا كُنْتُمْ I'm with you wherever you are. لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعْنَا Don't be scared, Allah is with us. That's nearness. When the Sahaba were yelling and making dua, the Prophet said like, why are you yelling? The one who you're calling to is the one who hears all du'as. Like, you don't need to yell, like, raise your voice. And then the third, Kuntum Khaira Ummatin Ukhrijatlinas. Like you're a community that has been sent for the benefit of people. Not isolation, not a cult. Allah describes the prophets, Yamshuna fil aswaqi, wa makanu min al-khalidin. They they walked in the markets. And the markets are what? The most hated place to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But still, yamshuna fil aswaq wa ma kanu min al-khalidin. So theology is meant to do that. The study of theology also is meant to do things, two things, two things, do two things to you. Number one is to affirm your belief, to strengthen you. And number three, to answer doubts. And that's also something that we don't talk about. So I remember, subhanAllah, I was in a Muslim country years ago whose name shall not be said. And uh, like on my passport is William, you know. That's my 401k. So, um, so I went into this bank and there was this lady. She was speaking to me in their local language. And then I didn't know she was Muslim, man. I didn't know. So um, she asked me, like, why are you in this country that shall not be named? And I was like, I'm here for a reason that also shall not be named. <laughs> and then, this is Egypt, man. So I went there to study. <laughs> I was in Egypt. She was like, and get ashen e, and get e, and get ashen Like, why'd you get come here? I was like, I came to study. Where are you going to study? I was like, ah, but Azhar. Like, an Azhar. Then she's like, Anta Muslim? Like, you're a Muslim? Right? And she's like, Ismaq William? I said, yeah, you know, alhamdulillah, years ago, like I accepted Islam. And uh, even though I know probably you're not Muslim, I don't want to, I thought she was Christian, I don't want to offend you. And she's like, la ba'ana Muslima? She got really angry, right? And I was like, I, I, hey, I didn't know. I'm just trying to be nice. And then she's like, you know, the problem is like, I don't have anyone to ask these questions I have, man. She's like, people look at me, they think I'm a bad person. I'm not a bad person, right? Just my life is like this, you know? And, and it was a lesson for me. I mean, I didn't judge her. I just honestly didn't know what her religion was. So then she said to me, like, I have, like, all these doubts, but, like, I don't have anyone I can ask. Can I have your email? I was like, you need my email? I just came to Egypt, man. So I gave her my email, and she started sending questions. And these were, like, very, very, not to disrespect her, but, like, very basic questions. Like, their answers are very easy. But she's like, طول hayati, يعني my whole life. Like, I haven't had access to just, like, deal with doubts. But people used to come to the Prophet. Yes, They ask you, what's the spirit? And they would ask him. And Sahib Muslim, the man comes to Sayyidina Nabi, and he says, like, I have ideas that I'm scared to mention in front of you. And then the Prophet says, really? He's like, yeah, like, I'm struggling. He's like, really? He said, that is al-iman. The Prophet said, like, that's Iman. Like, that battle is Iman. It's okay, ask, man. And the Prophet said, Like, the cure for any illness is as-su'al. It's to be able to ask. So one of the strategies of Muslim non-prophets is you have to make sure people have access to tech support, a.k.a. Imams. Imams are religious, spiritual tech support. That's how you function. Not to be authoritarian leader, not to take over the world and like, you know, have a flock. And that's some nonsense from shaitan. Serve people and answer their questions. So one of the goals of theology also outside of strengthening our worship and improving and strengthening what we believe is to deal with doubts 
and to answer questions that we have. And that's very healthy. Yani, alhamdulillah. So today, we're going to talk about something that's not in the text. Sorry to torture you like that. I send you the text, and then I'm going to talk about something that's not in the text. That's not cool, man. But it's very important because there is a system that classical theologians on that side of the spectrum used when they talked about God. We said that the scholars of Kalam, right? Kalam means to talk. So the idea that somehow Islamic theology is anti-reason, anti-intellectual. Man, our science is called the science of talking, man. Because you're supposed to talk about God. But the Sheikh, he begins, he says, He begins with a primary obligation. And this primary obligation became unpacked more and more and more and more by the school. In ways that are very profound, that perhaps we'll get to in the future. Um, but he says, You must know that the first obligation in Islam is to think. Not to say, La ilaha illallah, not to pray, not to be good to your parents. Don't go home now and like be mean to your parents and <laughs> say you haven't thought yet. You're beyond like this moment, right? But the, the question came like, what is actually the first step? And that takes you into classical books where Ibn Qayyim talks about irada, will, niya, intention, tasawwur, cognition, Tathbeet, to affirm, right? So this led to like the, interestingly enough, like the cognitive sciences. Like how do people think? So Ghazali writes a whole book on it. Uh, Dr. Sherman uh, translated, but that joint is not cheap, man. That's one of the Manhattan prices, but it's a good book. Maybe someone can cop it and PDF it. But Ghazali like begins to write about like what at what point does someone believe based on cognition? At what point does someone not believe? What point is someone in the middle? So this leads to like a robust discussion early on. The irony of the Muslim community is that it, it's the West is here. The West is like in darkness and we're in light. And then as we come, we start to go like this. And now like we're... Like, you don't find this kind of discussion of Ghazali now. You don't find as many sects as we had, although it's a problem, right? There's a million sects, 91 madhabs. But that man, people were thinking. For there to be 91 madhabs, <laughs> a lot was going on intellectually. There was a lot happening. So you'll find kind of this, as far as creativity and thinking happens. Around the 6th century after Hijra, it's like, and then we went, we've gone through a lot too, like having missiles dropped on us and having our, our resources stolen and the queen of England wearing our diamonds. That, that will do things to people, right? So some of it's beyond our control. Yes? Can we flesh out that obligation more? Isn't a human being inherently always thinking? Like what type To of think about God. So what he means here is the first step is to think about God in the sense of religious obligations. So they're saying, Fa'lam bi wujubil ma'rifa. So Allah says, Fa'lam, you must understand and know, La ilaha illallah. He didn't say, La ilaha illallah, Fa'lam. So this idea of the knowledge predicating thinking. See what I'm saying? Or, or, or understanding, yeah. So that is going to allow us to unpack something quickly, maybe a little complex, and then next week I'll try to have something for you. Yes? So my, like, my question is, you're saying the first step is to think, and I know you said there's a whole book uh, that dissects that, but at That's a good question. What is an obligation for someone to know? So Ahl-Sunnah on both sides said generally believing in God. Like Allah is one, Muhammad is a prophet, the hereafter, angels. Without, do you know like how many wings angels have? Like that's not an issue. 
So it, it's very profound that scholars, they stepped in because that, that said that question could be used by people like if you think about ISIS, right? <laughs> I know the story I read about it in the 80s in the Afghan Jihad, where the Jihad got off its rails, okay? That there was a man in, the, in his house, he was there when the Americans were backing it and Reagan was sending guns, okay? And they were fighting the Russians. There was a man sitting in his apartment, okay? And a man walked in and they sat down and this man was with his wife. And they asked him, what does Allah's rising on the throne mean? And he gave this side answer. And they shot and killed him, took his wife a captive, and then married his wife off to someone else. That's insanity, right? So scholars were worried that people would take these little fine issues of theology and say, you have to know this, you have to know this. But they took the hadith of the Bedouin who comes to the Prophet and says, I believe in God, I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to make hajj, and I'm not going to do anything else. And the Prophet said, who wants to see someone from Jannah? Look at him. So they said the obligation of knowing is affirming generally. So that's why many great theologians, theologians at the end of their life, like Razi said, Razi said, like, I wish I could die on the creed of the old lady in the Qarya. You know, like my grandma, she was, a, she was a Muslim, but if I told her, I read in the Bible that tomorrow Jesus is coming, <laughs> can I make some food for you? Right, let's go do charity. Whereas like with someone who may have went to like, you know, Azhar, tomorrow's the day of judgment. Is that Hadith Sahih? Where'd you hear that from? <laughs> we start arguing, right? So Razi says, there's a balance, right? I wish I died on that general strong faith. So the idea is what is obligatory, we say, upon the Muslims is Iman Ijmaliyan, not Tafsiliyan. Yani generally. So I believe in God, I believe in Allah, Allah is one. Even some could say, I believe as Allah describes himself in the Quran, that's my belief. Okay. We don't go into, what do you mean by that? So that's the problem when people become Muslim and we ask them, why you become Muslim? The Sahaba never did this. Because it was enough for someone to say, I believe Allah is Allah, I believe Muhammad is Muhammad, I believe in the hereafter. Of course, if someone says, like, I believe Allah is, you know, a person, then you want to say, we need to talk. But the general assumption is that that general faith is enough. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so that's where there's this need to learn and be exposed to, like, Islam. And we'll get to that in a second. But even for a young Muslim, there's a point in time where it's like, I believe in this. So that doesn't yeah. count as general knowledge? That would be general knowledge. That would be a general exposure. So that's why we would say masses of people haven't studied theology. We don't say they're not Muslims. We say they're Muslims. And we're ordered to have a good assumption of people in general, right? So the, uh, uh, when we say, for example, we see some, uh, the Prophet said, you know, whoever turns to our Qibla and eats our meat, right? We consider them as Muslim. When Sayyidina Omar said, like, we judge by people by what we see, we don't go into their intentions. Like, that's that general idea. Because if we get into specifics, at least to, like, cults, man and problems, and people tend to differ over what specifics. So then you have sex. So Ahl Sunnah in general were very careful. They said like, the hadith of Gabriel to believe in Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, they have judgment, they hear after qada and qadr, ijmalan. Like just to affirm it. So like when you go to Hajj, and that's why we should be merciful to people, man. You see like people, like old people, they're just like, they've never been to Hajj before. Like, they may come from a place where they don't read and write. We don't say they're not Muslims. We, we don't, we, we, we honor knowledge if the carrier of that knowledge deserves our honor. But we honor also people in general. So we affirm it generally. Yes? No, we can, right? So, for example, well, what? That does that, any government or they, they can't do that. I don't understand what you mean. Like they can't call a group of people prophets. 
They could, for example, when the person Musayla Mutl Kadhab said, I'm a prophet after the time of the Prophet Muhammad, Sahaba are like, this person's not Muslim, right? So that would be an example of that could have a ruling for sure, but I think we need to be very careful nowadays. Um, and that's why I worry when people online, we talked about this last week, right, are using words like bid'ah, kafir, fasiq. That should come from a group, a, like a group of a large enough body of people so that they're not, it's not being used or politically driven. Yeah. ISIS, yeah. uh, you have two or three different fatwa out there, right? Because number one is killing people, right? And killing people in cold blood, uh, creating trouble in Muslim lands. Yeah, so you find that out there. I mean, they made a fatwa. I'm kafir. ISIS, search my name on uh, New York Times. You might not come back to the class after you read that article. <laughs> you might collect the bounty as well. I think they're giving away yeah, something. But, but uh, scholars in general... We're very careful with that word. So, like, yeah. if somebody believes they're Muslim, you, like, an average person can still tell them they're not Muslim. Of course not, no. But that's what I mean, like, that's like, you need to check your law. Like, right now, someone's claiming that they're Muslim, can you tell them that? Until, until they, so Imam Abu Hanifa said, nobody come, leaves Islam like they let, the only way you leave Islam is like you entered Islam. How did I enter Islam? Takbeelah, Akbar, mashallah, brother, alhamdulillah. Like, it's very clear. We don't say someone's not Muslim based on suspicion. There's orthodoxy, but our orthodoxy is very compassionate. And, 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 and it's a lot that's happened to us. And, and one of the challenges of some of the state players amongst us is to create that kind of, oh, most Muslims are astray, most Muslims are wrong. And I mentioned the story a trillion times, man, when uh, Ibn Arabi went to Mecca, Sheikh Al-Akbar, he came to Mecca and he said, I saw the greatest ahmaq in my life. The greatest fool. And they said, who? He said, a person who said, there's no good in the Muslims. And that's being shaped in a way to make us like hyper cynical, where we don't trust each other anymore. And it creates like a self-fulfilling prophecy, man. Whereas the, the, the young woman who the prophet met her, she was in bondage. And he said, where's Allah? And she was like, she pointed up. He didn't tell her like, you know, when you point up, this like breaks a serious issue of theology because God doesn't have a location and da 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 He said, she's a believer, man. Because that's, that's, her, first of all, she's not in that academic world. But what she's saying is God is above all things, right? That's how she did it. He affirmed her iman, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we, we say that takfir doesn't happen in the face of doubt. And questioning people's iman, man, that's a problem. That's a, that's a means of spiritual abuse. Especially congregates in a community where someone's trying to use their authority. Doesn't mean we don't have orthodoxy. Doesn't mean we don't have foundations. We do, right? But we can, and there are times we need to be firm on that. Like I believe sometimes we're too soft when we get involved in interface stuff. We capitulate. Our God's the same, your God's the same. No, he's not. Like that's where there's, you know, Islam is the same religion as Christianity. No, we don't believe God had a son. Like respectfully, like that's something that we don't believe. So we got to Challenges, right? And education helps us kind of equalize some of that. So it says, فَعْلًا بِوُجُوبِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ And alhamdulillah, those of you who've never been here before, like, just feel free to interrupt, ask questions. Nobody gets upset. Unless it's a hard question. فَعْلًا بِوُجُوبِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ He said, you have to know that the first obligation is ma'rifah. We talked about ma'rifah. Ma'rifah is from a word which means arf, to smell. The tops of the mountains are called a'raf because they signify the existence of the mountain. So ma'rifah are those things which signify the existence of the Creator. We talked about the word al-alamin, Surah al-Fatiha, al-alamin from alam. What does alam mean? Adam al-jaysh, the flag, right? So everything around us is alam tadullu ala wujudihi subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything around us is like a flag that's saying the Creator exists. So that's one of the ways, the second way that we know God is through prophet and books. Because experimental or uh, lived knowledge is not necessarily enough to be correct. So someone may have played with models their whole life, but they're not going to let you like build a skyscraper. You had to go and acquire. So ma'rifah is the process of living and learning. The acquisition of rules and principles and experiencing that.
and living that. And if we teach people that through our paradigm of theology, we can appreciate our life. Oftentimes we feel like Islam is here and our life is here. But Ma'rifah is saying, if you know about Maslow like, and his hierarchy, or like Bloom's taxonomy, sorry, the idea of synthesizing faith with life. <coughs> like everything is to Allah. That takes us to something, uh, inshallah, that's important. And that is scholars said, in, in knowing God and in knowledge in general, how do we frame knowledge? This is something I've struggled to translate, so if I get it wrong, just ask Allah to forgive me. But our classical scholars on this side were enamored by the process of cognition, understanding. Because the most commonly used word in the Quran is what? Knowledge. And we find that different types of knowledge are mentioned. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ all those have different subtle meanings. Those who have, their knowledge has sunk into them. Right? So there's these different kind of terms that are used that fascinated them. Yes? Yeah, I don't know if I can do that, man. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about it maybe in the future. So Ya'lamun would be like surface level. I'm able to recognize the flag. Right, ilm. So I'm able to recognize the alamat. Um, the second is like fahim. So I'm able to understand the particulars of that thing. So you don't say, for example, alim tu anna sama anna shamsa fi sama. Like I learned that sun, or you could say, alim tu anna shamsa fi sama. And I learned that the sun is in the heavens. But you wouldn't say, faqihtu. Like that means like you sit for hours and hours and hours and finally you concluded this guy. You didn't need to do that to figure that out. But you could say faqihtu that the level of heat of the sun is this. So now you've gone into the particular of the sun. See what I'm trying to say? So the, the, the degrees of the understanding. Rusukh, I, I dove into it. So I'm like now looking at it from the inside out. It's interesting, man. Um, but our scholars were concerned with the idea of knowing. And they divided knowledge into three categories, coupled in different subcategories. So we're going to talk about this now. The first is what they called wajib. Wajib means its existence. And when they talked about knowledge, it's very interesting, by the way. Theologians mean from the perspective of existence. So I know it exists, okay? Existence, non-existence, and probability. So you remember these three words, wujud, al-adam, wal-mumkin, which means exist is wujud. Adam, non-existence. Uh, mumkin, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. So, God help me. So. <laughs> From this perspective, they said that knowledge, which is wajib, is ma yaqbaru al-nafi. Yani wujuduhu la yaqbaru nafi Its existence doesn't accept a denial. That's wajib. Wajib al-wujud. It's remarkable, man. Our early scholars were enamored by atheism. Because you can see where this is all headed for a theologian. It's not headed to like, am I eating burgers later? Is that wujud? Am I going to get those Yeezys tomorrow? Is that wujud? It's headed to God. So their whole discussion is brave enough to say, does God exist or not? And as we go through this text, you're going to see where there's times where this school says, okay, you don't believe God exists, so let's leave the sacred and argue about God within the non-sacred to prove to you God exists. Whereas now sometimes you're like, um, can we bring like this visiting professor to our mosque? Like, oh no, no, we can't have kafirs talking about kafir stuff in a mosque. Whereas these scholars were like, let's bang in the streets. Because like if I fight you just with Quran, like this is like circular logic. 
So let's step out in your arena and go there. So it's remarkable. And you don't have to agree with everything here in the text, right? What I like to do is just appreciate, like, they had guts, man. I don't necessarily have to agree, especially with scientific conclusions from a thousand years ago. I might not agree with that. But from a point of philosophy, the entire thing is about existence. Does something exist or not? If its existence does not accept negation, it's called wajib. Not like wajib in fiqh. This is called wajib aqli. So from the point of cognition, if I say, does this, is, this is wajib aqli. Don't like get theoretical, but like what if it doesn't really exist? No, no. Like what I can do in my limited ability to know is I know this exists. I'm asked, I affirm that. Number two is what's called wajib uh, uh, and then muhal, a mustahil. So its existence is impossible to prove. So, for example, uh, a chocolate covered dragon is in the room right now, breathing fire all over us. The next is jais. For example, am I going to take the train home or Uber or walk? I don't know yet. So that's called mumkin. Maybe. Wait, if something's existence is impossible to prove, that's Muhal. Yeah, muhal. Mustahil. Wujud. Wajib al-wujud. So the first is wajib. Second, muhal. The last is mumkin. Do you say mumkin in Urdu? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, I'm talking to you. I'm just looking at you. Comment at chin, man. Stop hating, man. Stop hating. Stop hating. I'm not from Rome. <laughs> Stop a lot, man. Call me out in front of everybody. Man. Someone's calling K right now. Um, but like, I know in Malaysian also they say mumkin. So mumkin, like maybe. So I say that from the, from the perspective of something existence, existing, there's three categories. Obligatory, impossible, maybe. And then they broke these into two categories. All of these. Number one is, what is wajib dururi? Like intellectually, it's, I cannot deny it. Like we're all here. Like no one's going to be like, man, what's the dalil? That we're not here right now. <laughs> Leave the room. <laughs> like, you're here, man. Quantum physics, I get it. No need to go there. But the general idea is we're in a space. We occupy a space. This became also a very interesting discussion later on. But for our simple class, Introductory to Theology, just think about us being in this room. Or I'm watching on YouTube. Like, you're not going to be like, no, I'm not, I'm not really watching this on YouTube. Like, you're watching on YouTube. Right? That's called wajib al-wujud. And what that's called is ilm dururi. Dururi means necessity. Like you don't, and, and most scholars said meaning you don't need evidences for it. You don't need evidences for it. The second is called wajib nadhari, which is something that is intellectually accepted as existing, but based on evidences that proved it. So research. So the first, I'm here. That's like wajib, dorori. Imam Khalid is in the lobby giving out free burgers. What is that? If we go outside and we find him and we see like these rappers from Honest Chops and we follow those rappers and we follow those rappers and then we see people smiling because he's such a warm, loving person. And then we smell the truffle fries that we're all going to get for free later. Those are all evidences that lead. Oh, snap. It's Khalid. That's called wajib nadhari. Meaning, I had to think and research it. And then a conclusion. I affirmed its existence. Yes, sir. The limitation of these concepts, wajib 
mahal jaiz are dependent on the fact of your ability of cognition. Of course. So how do we deal with that on one side and the other thing on the other side, which is Ibrahim saying, Oh Allah, show me how you raise the dead and the continuation of that ayah, not because I don't have faith, but because it will bring contentness to my heart. We'll get to it in a minute. Good question. Good question. Everybody understand this question? He's saying, but like Ibrahim, like show me how you cause life to death. Right? And then the third would be, uh, the second would be, you know, it's not existing. So there's a hypothesis about its non-existence. And I research it, that's going to be, it doesn't exist, nadri. It's non-existence like the chocolate-covered dragon in this room, unless you stopped the east end of Washington Square Park on your way over and saw Sheikh William. There people are selling things that if you were to ingest them, you may actually see a chocolate dragon. And that goes into the idea of senses and why now Islam is against intoxicants. It affects this, that ability, okay, except for bulletproof coffee. So, second is impossible to, ex to exist either. It's self-explanatory, maybe it's a good word for it, self-evident. Self-evident is a great word. Dorori, self-evident. Or it needs research. And then, of course, the mumkin, maybe, maybe not. That's all based on research. As we finish tonight, where do you think our theologians placed, don't blurt out an answer, placed God? Just think about it for a minute. There's no rush. No rush. Within the paradigm of cognition being I obligatory, it's self-evident, so I affirm it, Swahib's here, mashal hal, alhamdulillah, Khalid's here, where's the rappers, right? Swahib's not here, no, I see Swahib in front of me, unless it's Coachella, like Pac, and they got the light shining, and it's Swahib, which I don't think Swahib knows about that, although somehow he does, right? That's nadari, uh, that's maybe, maybe not, it's either self-evident, I'm obviously here, or you have to prove it, like Khalid's outside and then you prove he's not outside. That will be wajib. And then there's mumkin. What's an example of mumkin? I may be sick tomorrow, I may be healthy tomorrow. So the mumkin deals with qada and qadr, theologically, in my life. We'll open that later. But now, I just want us to think about the paradigm of knowledge. And if it's your first time here, it's usually not this hard and complicated. So don't get scared, right? But this is important. And it's also incredible to know your scholars thought about this stuff. Your ancestors weren't just like dumb people, man. They, they went into this because it was important to them. So, knowledge. Affirming something either Self-evident obligatory or research obligatory? Doesn't exist obligatory, needs research to prove it doesn't exist. Then, maybe, maybe not. My question to you is, and we're going to break up into groups and do this for a second. Do you think God is obligatory, impossible, maybe? According to, don't answer according to scholars, the, the predominant opinion of mainstream Sunni ulama was what? What's orthodoxy on this issue? So like, take like, we won't break into groups because of time. It's Valentine's Day. Folks got husbands and wives to go home to. Um, don't ask me that question either, but it is halal to love. I will say that. And can be an obligation. <laughs> and to save yourself also is an obligation, right? <laughs> but... Just think internally for a minute. We love to rush to answer sometimes because we're excited. It's awesome. Like, theology is cool, man. But just take a second. Think about it. Just a quick question to clarify. Do the concepts of Dururi and Nazari also apply to Adam and Munkin? Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Research, no research, self-evident. What's the anonym of self-evident? Uh, Come on. You're a lawyer, man. Antonym? Oh. Uh, yeah. The opposite of it? 
What law firm do you work for? <laughs> What's that? Yelp, Yelp review, Yelp review. The government, okay, that's okay. Everything's upside down now, bro. No, no, I'm just joking, man. I'm, I'm not trying to troll. I'm not trying to troll. Um, you know, self-evident and then perhaps implicit, maybe. Or, you know, it needs evidence. You need to research it. In Arabic, we call it qadiyah. In English, it's not my background. All right, so where do you think mainstream theologians put God in this formula of how they looked at life? And because they're people who are worried about God, the, the trajectory of this formula is always existence, non-existence. Existence, non-existence. It doesn't mean you apply this to everything in your life, right? We're looking through it like as I gave you like lenses of medieval Muslim theologians. That's how they look at things. And when you go and read now classical texts like Al-Razi, you're going to be able to appreciate Razi because this is Razi's whole game. Al-Ghazali in his, you know, save from misguidance. This is his whole dilemma, right? He's so brave to talk about this is what it was like to be so learned and to struggle. And this is how I came out of it, right? His whole thing is built on this kind of uh, ethos that I'll share with you. So where do you think they place God and why? So that way you don't just blurt it out. People do that. I think they put him here. Why? I don't know. It's like, it's like why you trade Porzingis? I don't know. Right? 17 in a row, man. Whew. Anyways, where do you think? They said, like, God is self-evident. God is an obligation that demands research. God is impossible to know. God is impossible to research. Maybe, maybe not. Where do you think they put it? Yes. So I guess this is also a question, but... Um, That's not fair, man. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we believe in the fikrah and the fact that um, the souls, even before we were created in our bodies, that we had to testify that there is no God but God, then shouldn't it be self-evident because every soul by default we're, we're born with that knowledge. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about fitra. That's a big misunderstanding about fitra, that somehow people are suddenly born being like Abdul Qadir Jailani. Well, that's not what fitra means. And in fact, that verse in Surah Al-Araf, Alastu bi rabbikum qaru bala, is actually meant for people in the hereafter to be. But, but it doesn't imply that people are suddenly born like they have the ability to know God. It doesn't mean they know God. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We're going to unpack that, by the way, in the future. And the fact that we have millions of people around us born and the fitra ain't, the fitra ain't a prophet. Like, if it was just fitra, there'd be no need for prophets. If it was just fitra, there'd be no need for books. So there's something there that we'll unpack in the future, but that's a good question, mashallah. All right, back to my question. Yes? I think you answered the question in your explanation. Man, don't, 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 don't say that. You're not allowed to talk. No, go ahead, man. Dang, man. Why, man? She set me up. Do you, do you know each other? <laughs> Something going on here. So it's not self-evident. It's meaning you would need to build up the evidence. Yeah, it's very beautiful that the majority, mainstream Sunni ulama said that God is not self-evident. That's the position. And the argument is why? Why would you send prophets then? Why would you send books? Why would the prophets have miracles? Right? Again, going beyond physical laws to prove of a being that exists beyond physical limitations. And, and that's very powerful, man, because that's the impetus to learn. Yes? There's also the view that certain people have the view that it's impossible to prove the existence of God, right? Even in different traditions. So if the Sunni scholars believe that it was, in fact, possible to give a proof of the existence of God. Most definitely, because when they say nazari, that's a great question, mashallah. Is this your first time here? What's your name? Sunia. Sunia, bring it, bring it hard the first time out, man. Mashallah, welcome. Alhamdulillah, it's good to have you. This is your first time too, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, alhamdulillah. So, yeah, and that, that then opens up this idea of how do you know him? How is that possible? How do you prove God exists? And that's where that discussion's unpacked, most definitely. Because they wouldn't say, like, you can learn about God, but you can't. 
And also they would, they also said the reality of God is impossible for any physical being to ever comprehend completely, even prophets. So what we know of God is what we're asked to know within the frame of who we are and out of his mercy, giving us information about himself. Yeah, that's a, another cool discussion. So you can see, like, we just took a basic text, but how you unpack it, right? And it's good because foundational texts give us the anchor so we don't get too far out in the ocean and get lost and get swallowed. But at the same time, they allow us to float and ask questions that are really important. So yes, you got it right, mashallah. Um, the mainstream majority said that God is a proven, eventual, evident obligation. And people will differ in that based on their cognitive ability, based on maturation versus maturation, environmental experiences, challenges they've had, and they will be judged according to that. And that's why we believe that people that have never been exposed properly to Islam, we say their case rests with God. Right? We say, hum kufar hukman wa majhul masiratan. Like we affirm, like we say they're not Muslim. Like we don't expect them to pray and eat the biha and show up for taraweeh. Right? But we say that their ending is known to God. Because of the level of exposure. That's why the 17th chapter says, So what that means is in the infinite knowledge of Allah, people's situations, abilities, will be taken into account. So again, let's review, man. Everybody's like staring at me. Like, usually we have fun, man. Sorry. Um, happy love day. So for, I love you all for Allah. So first, first, we talked about the shaykh. He mentions the first obligation is to think, to learn. At a basic level, not to be a genius, but at a general level, I believe in God. I believe in Allah, I believe in the prophets, God is one, as we learned our lives, right? Number two is, like, for example, I remember when I wanted to convert, I was reading this book, a uh, small pamphlet, Islam at a Glance, and it was from Jamaica, Queens, crazy. So I remember I went to the mosque and I met this brother, I was like, yeah, I think like God is one, he has no likeness, he has no kids. He's like, yeah, brother, but like, you need to take this really deep course on theology. He shouldn't have told me that. Because I said, I believe God is one. It's, it's interesting Islam's approach on these issues. So we find Bedouins will come to the Prophet and say, Ashhadu wa la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna rasul. He doesn't ask them like, Ma ma'na al-ilaha Let's deconstruct what it means, messenger of God. And they, and they grew over time. And they learned over time. And they developed over time. The second thing that we talked about is now the first obligation is to think according to most. And that thinking is divided into its perspective from the lens of existence, obligatory, impossible, maybe. And that falls into two, self-evident and researched. Self-evident and researched, right? So we said mainstream scholars, large majority of them said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not self-evident, we don't see God. So we have to learn. And that's why prophets and books and the signs of Allah should be appreciated around us. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes? Um, just like based on the question he asked earlier, um, so the categories you said are subjective, the categories of cognition. I mean, yeah, but you're going to have like, of course, orthodoxy is going to settle on certain things that we may unpack in the future, right? Like these are kind of this process. That's there for us, right? But. The general person isn't going to be able to learn all that stuff, right? So throughout their lives, they may have higher relationship with Allah than they do in other parts based on what they know and understand through life. So, of course. Um, and just something else. Um, what would count as something that's self-evident without research in Islam? I'm right in front of you right now. In, in Islam? That would be like in Islam, the idea of existence. Yeah. So all aspects of belief, as you're saying, like the six pillars, yeah, demand that research. So that, that like, for example, any, name one pillar of the deen in faith that's self-evident 
not a practice. Amen. We're talking about theology. They all demand. So why would Allah say, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ Like, think. قُسِيرُوا Look. Delve into it. Right? So that's there. Now, if we were to take this and apply this to many of our educational institutions, man, not to be cynical, are we encouraging people to think? Are we encouraging people to, like, use their mind? Or are we saying, no, don't ask that question. No, 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 stop that. I remember when I was in church, I was little, I asked a question. I was like, why is God white? And they're like, why? I was like, Jesus Christ on the wall is white, but in my friend's church, he's black. Why is he white? And they're like, this is one of those questions from Satan. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, what that kind of man? I'll start thinking I had a gin inside me, dude. <laughs> I got a gin up in me, right? You know, gin and juice. I was like, man, I got gin and juice in me. And that's how, and that's how we hurt people. Whereas the best answer is like, I don't know, but we can struggle together. Like, that's more empowering than, you know, the jinn, shaitan, the prophet, the only time he said that is if someone says you, who created Allah? He said, that's from shaitan. Then you used to say, Billah. Other than that, legitimate, sincere questions, like people that want to know, that's very different than someone that's trying to start a fireman. So, yeah. All those are based on a level of investment in learning. Now we see why the sheikh says the first obligation is to what? Because now you unpack it all. To think about these things and to study. So that ma'rifah, again, remember, I learn orthodoxy, I live orthodoxy. I may even battle with orthodoxy. I don't know if I agree with this. That could be a lifelong process. Like before I converted, I was like, so you're telling me there's one guy that I got to follow for all the stuff I do in my religion. Because I'm coming out of a, a Christian experience where a pastor had like abused our, our congregation. So I'm sensitive to like that. And it took me a while to understand like who is Muhammad and like how's my relationship with Muhammad like that's a process. This isn't an event, right? This is gonna happen throughout our life. And that's also something that's very important for people like, it's gonna, like give yourself time man. I feel like I'll be like super believer tomorrow. And then if our parents are telling us, you're a bad Muslim, you don't believe, like that, or our loved ones, like, doesn't <laughs> help the situation. Yes, ma'am. Someone had their hand up? Yes. Yeah, so why are the books not considered self-evident? Because you have to dissect the religion. How do you know that book is true? How'd that book get in your hands? Right? So, of course, like, generally, if I read it and God says, this is from Allah, and I'm like, I believe that, okay, it's fine. Like, we wouldn't tell someone, oh, now you got to go, like, to all the anthropology and you got to trace. Of course not. Like, we wouldn't say that, right? If someone says to me, I believe the Quran is the truth, I would never ask them that question, right? I wouldn't open up that door. Right? This, this is an academic environment, right? So we're studying it maybe in a little more intense way. Um, but if someone's like, I believe in the Quran because the Quran is from Muhammad. Okay, like, this is, that's what Allah, that's good, man. That's why uh, uh, Imam Malik, certain type of hadith, he wouldn't teach in front of the people because they demanded a higher level of understanding, like God laughs, God rises, God sits. He didn't narrate that in front of the people. Why? Because he knew, like, they're not trained theologians. And those aren't hadith that are necessary for them to be better people. But he would narrate the hadith about being good to your wife, good to your children, right? Looking after the poor, standing up for justice, believing in God generally. Any other questions before we... Yeah, a lot of questions, mashallah. Yes, ma'am. I mean, there's people that may call on Allah through their fitrah, right? And their du'a is answered because right? of their sincerity. Like they, they, 
based on where they are in life and what they know, that's what they know. They're not exposed to something else. That's what they know. So that's what they're expected to know. Yeah. So now you can see like why the religion is a compassionate religion, why the Prophet is patient, why he carries people. And unfortunately, like we may have tinkered with some things because of experiences that we've had uh, and because of injections into our community that have created some, some challenges. Do we believe there's kufr? We believe there's kufr. Do we believe there's orthodoxy? We believe there's orthodoxy, of course. Like we hold on to that as foundational. But people that haven't been exposed to that properly, like we're ministers, man. We're not pounding them. Yes, sir. Can I just amend my previous question? Um, you can amend it if you want to. It's on, it's on YouTube. So, we have an amendment. We have an amendment. Show me how it is that you raise the dead. You would expect a question like that from somebody who had just started out in his religion looking for clear confirmation of what it is that he holds to be faith in his heart. But he's doing it at a time where he has a position with God that is contrast to that new, fresh look of being a Muslim. And so that's one thing. You're reading a lot into the verse. How do you know he was just became a Muslim? Just be careful. How do I know that? Yeah, it doesn't say that in the verse, right? How do you know he hadn't been a prophet for a long time? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That he's saying that at a later stage of his life. How do you know that? I'm saying, saying like, we got it. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And we need to, so that I'm needs to be sure, researched. But then the other side is that there's, there's a hadith of Ali, Ali where he said that even if the veil of everything that had been covered were risen, my iman would not have changed. So there's, there's, there's a contrast of kind of what these two things are being told, that one, Ibrahim is looking for that confirmation, and there's maybe evidence that says my iman may change to that um, uh, miracle. He said, do you not believe? He said, no, I believe. I just want to strengthen my iman, increase my iman. So it doesn't mean that he's like, he was weak. He said, I already believe. I just want to become even more stronger. I had no problem. And also there's a belief that the Iman of the Prophets was perfect. So why would Ibrahim do that? To teach us how to strengthen our Iman. What they call Baba Tamthil. That's where theology comes. How do, that's why, for example, we teach theology before Quran. Because the principles of theology help us interpret. So, this is, so the assumption like Ibrahim's Iman was weak? No. That's a prophet. Right? We believe the Prophet's Iman is perfect. So, I'll give you an example. Why would the Prophet send salawat upon himself? To teach us. It's called Baba Tamthil. Why would the Prophet make, this is controversial, why would he do the Aqiqah for himself twice? His uncle did it, and then he did it in Medina for himself. Why would the Prophet make Aqiqah and fast on his birthday? To show us Mawlid and Nabawi. So we have something with the Prophet called Baba Tamthil, that they do things that are for us to follow, for us to do. Yeah? So there's a, a discussion on this. As for the riwayat of Sayyidina Ali, I don't know if it's authentic, weak, strong. That's going to be a question. Let's say it's authentic. As, as there are narrations like this, right? Many, especially Sayyidina Ali, uh, radiallahu anhu. Yani that's based on his understanding of where his iman is. That's my yaqeen. That's okay. It's different than qadat al-a'rab wa amana qulam tu'minu. Like those Arabs who are claiming Iman, but don't, haven't really lived it. Sayyidina Ali is saying, based on my whole life and where I am in my life, I'm good. Yeah. But there's, there, we'll unpack that when we get to prophets, the story of Sayyidina. Because the prophet said, no one has more of a right to doubt to us than Ibrahim in authentic hadith. To strengthen my heart. To, to set it at ease at the power that I see. Because also Allah says, Like we showed Ibrahim the secrets of the heavens and earth so he would achieve certainty. So we'll get to that when we talk about prophets. I see you're, you have a good point, man. Alhamdulillah. Any other questions before we break away? It's a good, good, mashallah. Yes, sir. Are, are fundamentally different than what they used to experience 
same and the, the answers to those are found in our tradition versus if they're new, like they have to, the answers have to be found outside of the tradition or not in a way that's against it necessarily, but in a way that uh, is authentically derived. Yeah, so personally, I believe that's a great question. I believe that the tradition is like an important interpretive lens. At the same time, it would be impossible to say that what people are experiencing now is exactly the same as people experienced then. But I think it's good to use the tradition as a starting point to make sure that we're somewhere safe, right? I don't think answering people's questions is going to challenge us in our tradition. I don't think that's a problem, right? So I don't see really a contradiction. I, I have a problem with people that are traditionalistic, where they force people to live like people did five, six, seven hundred, eight hundred years ago. Like a lot of the traditions, Aristotelian, Aristotelian logic was destroyed by Boolean logic. So why would you still utilize an Aristotelian construction when it was destroyed by people? I have a problem with that. And then Aristotle is a construction. Hello. Right. So I think there needs to be a reboot that's rooted in our foundational text. I think someone should learn the tradition before they I have a problem with people that want to destroy the tradition and haven't learned it. That's another problem. Right. So at least be familiarized with where I'm, I'm looking at and then become Bruce Lee. Like Bruce Lee went to Shaolin, then he becomes Bruce Lee. Like people want to like run before they can walk. At the same time, there's people that say, no, like we have to teach this book like letter for letter. We can't change anything. Like that's a disservice like to people, man. So Sheikh Marzuki is a great example of this. He comes at a later age, challenges himself to think about public education and composes a text that honors the tradition, but does so in a way that answers the people's questions around him. Yeah, and that's a challenge. Yes, sir. So, so where does 